0: Tom, you just got back from vacation. I noticed your Instagram feed is just bursting with vacation shots. Why? Why are you putting your family's vacation on the internet for everyone to see? What I like about it is that I can go back in the
1: future and look. Uh, it's a sort of edited version of um, of pictures that I can look at. So the fact that they're public is, is sort of incidental to it. It's really, um, these
0: are the pictures that that represent that holiday for me. Sure, but does the fact that they're going to be on the internet for public consumption, does that shape the kinds of pictures you take or how you pose the pictures or how you edit the pictures? I I probably does. I don't know,
1: sometimes, I mean, I posted this picture of, you know, spices at a market in Sicily. And, you know, the caption is Instagram cliche because it's just like complete. And then another picture was- You knew what was
0: expected of
1: you, I, right? I, I you suppose knew it was so. the kind of picture well, the, people the, would like. Probably the silliest one is this picture of my wife sitting next to a, a swimming pool doing this kind of 80s modeling pose. And it's like the saxophone solo is about to come in. And this is, in fact, um, the house we were staying in, the, the, uh, the webpage that, you know, from the travel company where we saw it, has this woman sitting in front of the, You know, they've got a model to go and sit there. And so we thought we would recreate this because obviously we're living the dream that they've sold us in the, so we did this and then the travel company saw it and liked it. And
0: you know, it's, we're just being silly. But so the, the sort of like false dream vacation shot you then recreated this 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 false thing but it was sort of real but it was sort of fake but then you put it on instagram for people to see in order to give them some kind of image of the kind of vacation you take in which was actually like a copy of a copy that never existed exactly we're it's, going down rabbit holes we, we are there's,
1: there's so many games and tie games going on here but this is you know it's it's it's
0: silly it's well, fun this this is what social media has done to us it's created these incentives these Expectations about reality and false reality and constructed reality. That's what we bathe in these days. The truth is, though, the camera is a liar, and it has always been a liar. So, this is where the story of Edmund Carpenter comes in. He's an anthropologist. His friends called him Ted. It's 1969, and Ted Carpenter has taken a professorship at the university in Port Moresby which is the capital of Papua New Guinea. And Ted has a special assignment there. At that time, huge parts of Papua New Guinea were almost entirely undeveloped. And the plan was for him to trek deep into the interior and to have interactions with these Papuan tribes there that have basically never encountered the modern world.
2: I then uh, went to New Guinea and spent about a year there. This is Ted Carpenter speaking
0: in a 2003 documentary about his work.
2: And uh, Native groups were... uh extremely friendly. The landscape was just fabulous, amazing.
1: And isn't Papua New Guinea also famous for having, like, hundreds of languages? So, like, every every valley and every bay has a different tribe with a different language, and they can't understand the people just around the corner.
0: Yes, very distinct. There's no monoculture.
2: 800 mutually unintelligible languages and, and different physical cultures, and no one was borrowing anyone else's culture or costumes.
0: The way he put it was he could step in and out of 10,000 years of history, observing and probing and testing.
2: It was possible with the greatest of ease with just an outboard motor uh, and a dugout to go right up into prehistory, uh, where you actually saw stone axes being used and not by choice.
0: And what Ted Carpenter decided as he began to visit these tribal villages was, was he wasn't going to do what the university wanted him to do, and he wasn't going to do what a traditional anthropologist would do, which is write a monograph that might only be of interest to other anthropologists. Instead, he sees an opportunity to conduct a completely insane experiment.
2: We could step in and out of different uh, media worlds, different periods of time.
0: The experiment that he's excited about is he wants to find out what happens when an adult who's been living in a primitive world suddenly sees himself in a photograph or on film for the very first time. From Slate, I'm Seth Stevenson. From The Economist, I'm Tom Standage. Welcome to The Secret History of the Future. So Ted Carpenter goes deep into Papua New Guinea, and what he does there is he shows Polaroids to tribespeople who have never seen a photograph before, certainly never seen a photograph of themselves before, in many cases have never even looked into a mirror before. So these people went from zero to selfie in just a few seconds, and it kind of blew their minds, and almost immediately they started helping the camera to tell lies. So what happened? How did the Papuans react? So at first, like, they can't really interpret the photograph that they're looking at. It's hard for them to know what is this thing. So he points at the nose in the photo, he points at the nose on the villager, he points at the hair in the photo, he points at the hair on the villager. And when the penny drops, it's like a slap to the face, like there's this sudden shock of recognition.
2: Well, uh, the impact would be so startling to them once they understood that they could see their soul, their image, their identity outside of themselves. They were startled. And invariably, they would cover their mouths uh, and then turn away and uh, then take the image and look at it again and hide and so forth.
0: And what Ted Carpenter begins to realize is that these photos are completely rearranging their self-conception, right? So they thought of themselves as part of a tribe, that their identities were all wrapped up in the group. But the effect of seeing themselves in a photo for the first time, like just them, he called it instant alienation. Like the photo made the self more real, the self more dramatic.
2: But all of that passed. Within weeks, people were walking around with the images of themselves on their forehead. And I don't think there's any return to the initial innocence.
1: So this doesn't sound like the sort of thing anthropologists are supposed
0: to be doing. Well, you know, as you might guess, some anthropologists were pretty horrified. But Ted Carpenter was sort of a hipster anthropology professor. And he was best buds in the 1950s and 60s with Marshall McLuhan, the media theorist. Tom, are you familiar with Marshall McLuhan?
1: Yes, although I think I'm probably familiar with like the slogans or the catchphrases he came up with. And as far as I can tell, he was great at sort of coining these memes.
0: So the medium is the message is the one that people are most familiar with, that
1: aphorism. And also the idea of the global village. Um, I'm not quite sure what they mean, and I'm not quite sure what
0: his point was. I think the value he gave was he asked a lot of very provocative questions and he forced people to think about the world they were living in, things that were just sort of the wallpaper of their lives. He asked them to examine them and say, wait a second, that you're living in a world where the, the, the radio is all around you, television is all around you. What is that doing to you? What is that doing to us? How is that changing the way we see the world?
1: So what do you think McLuhan is getting at when he says the medium is the message? Does he really mean that the only thing that matters is the medium?
0: I think what he's saying is that the communications technology technology that you are using is in some ways more important than the content you're actually conveying with it. Here's how Ted Carpenter put it.
2: Because every medium has its own bias, its own environment, its own reality. And uh, we occasionally understand that when a, a medium and a message get together, it can be a powerful statement.
0: So that's the world Ted Carpenter comes out of. And that leads him to do this sort of crazy experimental anthropology, which raises a lot of ethical issues. But let's, for the time being, let's sort of hand wave away these ethical concerns, because for our purposes on this show, Ted Carpenter's research is incredibly useful, because this show is all about tracking the evolution of people alongside technology, the way technology changes over the centuries. But Ted Carpenter short-circuits that process. He makes a wormhole from this pre-media... Stone Age tribe to the up-to-date technology of 1969, the Polaroid camera. He does it in the span of a second. So what happens after that initial shock is that a lot of the Papuans start to wear the photographs of themselves above their faces as sort of a second face, and their friends will greet them by examining the photo of them. So the photo becomes the more important thing. It's like the more real manifestation of the person.
1: Which is sort of relatable today, isn't it? Because I see pictures of my friends on social media, you know, more often than I see my actual friends. Exactly. So so
0: I'm experiencing them mainly through their representations. Yeah, There's been this wild proliferation of self-portraiture in the last few years for like your Instagram feed or your Facebook feed. And it's all meant to be immediately shared with your friends or even people who aren't like quite really your friends or like acquaintances or like even the level beyond that. And it's kind of hard for us to remember how new that is. We weren't doing that as recently as 10 years ago. And I don't think, if I can play Marshall McLuhan for a moment, I don't think we've fully come to grips with the way that that is changing us. Like outside of my family and the coworkers who I see every day at the office, most people I know, I see them way more often in photographs. Than I do in real life. Even if it's someone who lives in the same city as me, I am far more likely to see them on their Instagram feed or their Facebook feed, like a picture of them on vacation or a picture of them with their baby than I am to bump into them on the street or see them for a drink. I see everyone in photos now. And so it's like the photos, the Instagram feed, that is them, right? It, that That's a new mode of existence. And I feel like our immersion in this new visual realm it's kind of like the Papuan's encountering the Polaroid camera for the first time. Like it's it's brand new. We don't know how it's changing us. And isn't posting a stream of selfies isn't that like wearing my own photo on my forehead where it's the photos that have become the more real manifestation of me. That's the thing that matters. Sometimes Ted Carpenter gets to a Papuan village and it turns out he's been beaten there by another Western film crew, like a documentarian who's recording images and not sharing them with the villagers the way that Ted Carpenter was, just using them to show to other Westerners. And in those places, the thing was that the Papuans seemed to learn exactly what the documentarians were expecting them to do in front of the camera. So what Ted Carpenter wrote was, the instant they saw the cameras, they rushed about for props then sat in front of the cameras, one chopping with a stone axe, another finger painting on bark, a third starting a fire with bamboo. They were all equity actors. So they formed this sort of living tableau because they know that's what's expected. of them. They know that's what the documentarian wants.
2: I I, I don't feel these films ring true.
0: And he noticed that about documentaries that had been made about the indigenous people. He spent time with in Arctic Canada, which he did before he went to New Guinea.
2: For one thing, they they turn every igloo into a scientist's workshop. You know, all these cheery, jolly Eskimos doing string figures and listening to stories and playing with a baby and so forth. That isn't what an eagle is like. It drips. You shift from one buttock to another and you wonder what in God's name you're doing there. The Somebody belches. Every fart is, is, is lived with collectively the the the, uh, the place uh, the place is very depressing
1: do they think that that's just what they're meant to do or i don't know are they just are they playing along with i'm tr- i'm trying to work out kind of what's what do you think's going through their minds when they feel like this is the ritual that must be performed in front of the camera machine
0: Well, i think it's kind of like what happens when we take an instagram vacation shot we kind of know what is expected of us, right? We kind of know what the shot's supposed to look like and we're supposed to look happy and you're supposed to capture the cocktail with the straw in it in your hand. And and so you create this tableau for the camera. That's what you think the, the viewer wants. So they know they're going to be asked
1: to, you stand over there and you, you get the hand axe out. They know that that's what's going to, be asked of them anyway so they might as well just cut to the chase and be the uh, the
0: papuans from central casting well the camera creates a fake reality the presence of the camera causes people to behave differently it did for the papuans and it does for us so tom i went to the offices of snapchat in los angeles Snapchat is that app where your photos disappear right after you send them. That ephemerality fascinated a guy named Nathan Jurgensen. A few years ago, Nathan got hired as Snapchat's in-house sociologist, which is kind of weird for a social media company. But he studies how photography fits into our culture. And he's been looking back at the history of the camera and trying to fit into context this new era of things like Snapchat and Instagram, what he calls social photography. So, he also thinks that the camera has always lied then and now. But he says it's what makes photography so appealing.
3: You know, it's a really complicated, messy epistemological artifact, the photograph. And uh, that's always has been. And the words we use change, but the essential debate is we want this thing to tell the truth. But it doesn't. It always fails. It always ends up being something slightly false and seductive in that way, right? Like, if it was just a truth telling machine, I actually think we'd be really bored with it. It'd just be the scientific mechanism. Instead, it lies a little bit, and that's really seductive. And that makes it kind of magical, and it makes it fun. It makes us want to play with it. And that was the case with the Kodak brownie, and that's the case with Instagram. Uh, And it's that tension between truth and false that keeps us coming back for more. What Jurgensen thinks is
0: new. Is the way that we share our pictures now, and the way that shifts our expectations of what we'll photograph and how we'll photograph it.
3: People often say that uh, photography is so much different today because uh, it's so easy to take a picture. But we had for a long time; it's been very easy and very cheap to take a picture. What's different is having the social network. Uh, you wouldn't take a picture of your latte unless you had someone to send it to. To me, that's really what changes photography. It's that impulse to share, that when you are looking at the world and you see a photo in the world, you see the photo with the potential audience in mind, right? That is, I think, very different.
0: The way that people use photos now on social media, and especially young people, is that they use their photos to communicate.
3: The general trend is that photography looks more like talking. Photography looks more like social interaction. That sociality didn't become overcome by the technology of the photograph. I think that photography, to a much larger degree, looks more like sociality.
0: So photos have become a kind of language. They're not meant to be framed, put on the wall, and presented as who we are. And those photos aren't really
3: supposed to be looked at, again, 20 years from now, or even 24 hours from now. For the most part, when you're talking with somebody, you're having a conversation with somebody, uh, they're ephemeral, and it goes away. And I think images have become a way of communicating, and like most conversations, they are often ephemeral. I
0: think of Nathan Jurgensen as a sort of Ted Carpenter. Only, instead of studying the way that photos change Papuan tribespeople, he's studying the way that social photos are changing people who use apps like Instagram and Snapchat. And one of the things that he feels strongly about is that the way these apps are designed plays a big role in how they make us feel. For instance, there's this thing we call FOMO, the fear of missing out.
3: You go online, you see the screen, and everyone's having a great time, and you're you're disappointed in your own life. And I think, uh, and there is research that shows that. Like it's a FOMO is a fun acronym, but it's not without merit. Uh, I think that's a real thing. And the uh, the question is. How are social media sites designed to create that? And is that an inherent property of photography? Or is that the outcome of specific design decisions that platforms have made? One of the
0: things that some of these apps do is count the number of likes or shares that your photos get. And that can maybe encourage you to take different kinds of pictures to see if you can
3: get your numbers up. It's kind of an unhealthy sort of game. Because, I mean, games are fun, games are cool. I don't mean to say, you know, they should be part of social life. I like games. But not all of our interactions, not all of our news gathering, not all of our self-presentation, our interaction with our families and friends and loved ones, Like, not all of that should be run through the logic of games and numbers and metrics and scores. Uh, And I think that's been really, it was really a radical design decision. And nobody really talks about it as radical because it's just normal. I think we're just so used to, like, the first wave of social media doing that, that we don't take that to be this radical and, I think, kind of cruel design decision uh, that we should just be really angry at and asking for it to go away.
0: Sometimes we can feel powerless when we use these social media apps, the way they visually surround us. And I kind of imagine it's what the Papuans must have felt like when Ted Carpenter confronted them with a Polaroid. So far, we've been talking about the way the camera lies before the shutter clicks. The way you put a camera on a tripod in front of people and suddenly they'll all pose in a certain way. Or when you ask someone to take an Instagram vacation shot and they know what to do, they construct it in a certain way. These are all things that happen before the shutter snaps. But one of the things you can do with photos on social media after we've taken the photo is you can edit them. You can alter them and augment them. And it's really easy. And that opens up a lot of other opportunities for expression.
3: You know, when I add how I'm feeling with words or a drawing on that sunset, it now takes a picture that was kind of banal and uninteresting and looked like everybody else's and now became uniquely me. And I think what's happened is that we've become with uh, social photography more like the storyteller. It's not really about getting the facts exactly right, but I'm expressing something. I'm expressing my experience. I'm expressing a feeling. Uh, And that's a truth that may be over and above the fact of the matter. And I think that's where we're going with social photography.
0: We think of image modification as something that's pretty modern and something that's just a lark for us on Snapchat. But it's actually got a long history and it can have serious consequences.
1: So I spent a year working as a Photoshop operator, and this was way back in the in the '90s when digital photography was just getting started. But the weird thing about Photoshop is you spend a whole day doing Photoshop, and then it messes with the way you perceive the world because you end up walking down the street and you want to like rubber stamp all of the blemishes on the pavement, and you want to fix the bricks and the houses that aren't that quite fire right. Fire hydrant
0: is unattractive. Yeah, exactly, let's exactly. Just and let's
1: take it out just and so, wipe it out. So It really messes with your head doing uh, doing Photoshop for kind of long periods. But um, but did I still did. You feel like a liar. Uh, well, I was kind of, you know, just following orders at that point. I was working. Oh, that's of, no excuse. Because, well, I know, I know. But, you know, that's that's the excuse I'm going to use. I mean, they said you do this and do this and so I
0: did it. Tom, you were doing this in the mid 90s, but, you know, we've been photoshopping things since long before computers even existed. Well, the funny thing is that the modification and
1: manipulation of photographs isn't new. And in fact, it's as old as photography itself. So having your picture taken in a photo studio was the done thing. You know, you want to have your your picture on the wall. And uh, for decades, starting in the 1860s, a well-known visual joke, which I suppose today we'd call a meme, was the fake decapitation image. One of the things they could offer you was the option to be shown holding your own head, like a ghost or someone who'd recently um, you know, been to the guillotine. And this was done through the magic of dark from wizardry, they'd essentially
0: take a picture of you and then cut out the head and and move it. And that's just a bit of fun. But similar tricks can be used in much more sinister and consequential ways. I always think of those photos of Stalin in the 1930s, where he's got his right-hand man next to him. And then when you see another version of the picture, the person has just completely disappeared.
1: Or they've been replaced by someone else. Yes, they're hilarious, those pictures, because they change over time. You get several different versions of them. You can see from one version to the next as people appear and disappear and their faces change, who's in favor and who's fallen out of favor in a particular year. So there's a very, very long history of this, even before the digital era. The digital era has just made it easier and something that we can all do in Few seconds just with a few taps on our smartphones.
4: I do remember one of the first ones. Um, It was uh, John Kerry and Jane Fonda.
0: This is Hani Farid. He's a computer science professor at Dartmouth College, and he studies how to authenticate whether an image is real or faked. One of the first images he debunked was in 2004 when John Kerry was running for president. And a photo circulated showing Carrie sharing the stage at an anti-Vietnam war rally with Jane Fonda, who was a hugely controversial figure for things that she'd said and done during the Vietnam era. The thing was, Carrie had never been on stage with Jane Fonda.
4: Something about the photo just was bugging us. We didn't know what it was, and it actually led us to develop a technique to analyze the lighting. In a photo to determine if the sun that's illuminating the people in the scene is in the same physical location. And that was one of the first sort of trickster photos during the uh, election. And, And I will tell you one of the most stunning things about this story was after the election, after Kerry lost... I remember listening to a radio station, a news news story, and they were interviewing somebody who voted for Kerry's uh, opponent. And he said, why didn't you vote for Kerry? He said, well, I couldn't get that image of Kerry and Fonda out of my head. And the reporter said, well, you know that was a fake image. And this is true. The guy said, I know, but I couldn't get the image out of my head.
0: <laughs> and that's why images have played a role in politics since the beginning of the camera. Even when you know that the image is false you still can't shake it. That's the power of the visual. So, Tom, we have been talking mostly about still photos, but now imagine that that still photo of John Kerry and Jane Fonda, imagine it was a fake video. And so we could see John Kerry walking around the stage and talking, and we could see Jane Fonda walking around and talking to him. And John Kerry saying, I worship Satan and I want to kill puppies. And we're almost at the point where you can fake videos as easily as you can Photoshop images.
1: In fact, just as we use the word Photoshop generically to refer to image manipulation, the word deepfake is starting to be used for manipulated videos. And deepfakes are fake videos made using a form of machine learning called deep learning. But essentially it means that if you've got enough photos of someone, it lets you stick their face onto someone else's body in a video. And it's getting to the point where the kind of thing that used to take CGI artists months in a Hollywood movie uh, to put a dead actor back into a film if they died in the middle of filming or whatever, you can now just download the software and do this at home.
0: Right. And just like the decapitation photos in those 1860s photo studios, some of these deepfakes are pretty harmless, but some of them aren't. For instance, there are deepfakes that will place a famous actress's face on the body of a woman in a pornographic film. And what Hani Farid is doing is trying to figure out how to keep up with the advances in deepfake technology and to be able to identify fake videos in cases where they might be spreading harmful misinformation.
4: There's been a very dramatic change over the last year in terms of these deep fakes and how the machine learning algorithms are being used. And that is very disconcerting because the forensic science is you know, really struggling to keep up because literally every few months there is a new technique out there. And so it's it's very much a moving target for us. And that is an incredible challenge.
0: OK, so what happens when these deep fake videos start to enter the realm of political
4: propaganda? They're literally synthesizing images by trying to match the head pose, the, the eye movements, the, the, the mouth movement, and you can basically act as a puppeteer, and, and then you have synthetic voice, and we now have the ability to create videos of... A president, a world leader, saying things that they never said, and it—the the, the video is not perfect. There, there's often artifacts, but they are getting to the point where they are a little alarming because you can—you can imagine a scenario where videos go viral of President Trump saying, "I've launched nuclear weapons against North Korea," and by the time anybody gets around to analyzing that video and figuring out that it's fake, you know, we have global nuclear meltdown in this world, and I don't think that is out of the question. I don't think it's likely, but I don't think it's out of the question.
5: You know, this the saying that, you know, pics or it didn't happen has given way to video or it didn't happen. We still intuitively trust video. And if video can be compromised or, or made up, that goes out the window.
1: Rebecca Krutoff is executive director of the Information Society Project at Yale Law School, and she studies the legal issues around things like deepfakes. She has this bet with some other experts in this area, including one of my colleagues at The Economist as it happens. And the bet is quite specific. It's that someone is going to create a fake video about a political candidate and it's going to get more than 2 million views before it gets debunked
5: and that all of this is going to happen before the end of 2018. The real question is not if this is going to happen, the real question is when. The most likely thing that, that will happen is that we'll discover there was a deep fake. Long after it's affected the situation,
1: whether she wins the bet or not, the rise of fake videos highlights a deeper problem with our ability to decide whether images can be trusted
5: on one hand this this is the next step from photoshopped images that that just as we had to learn not to trust photographs, now we 're going to have to learn how not to trust video. The difference being is that when we were learning to not trust photographs, we had video as a backstop. I don't know what we have after we don't trust video anymore.
1: There's this concept called the liar's dividend. The idea is that if you put enough lies out into the world, there can no longer be any truth. It's a trick that authoritarian leaders love to use. When Russia's accused of doing something bad, for example, Vladimir Putin floods the media with alternative narratives, so nobody knows what to believe. So following this principle, if there are enough fake videos in the world, then every video could seem
5: suspicious. Even if there's accurate video, it can be accused of being a deep fake. And so truth itself comes under attack. It's hard to tell what we have as an objective source of truth anymore. Which brings
0: us back to Ted Carpenter, the anthropologist in New Guinea. At one point in his travels, he encountered a tribe that had a sacred, secret male initiation rite. He'd brought his movie camera, it was actually his wife Adelaide who was the camera person, and when the tribe saw it, they asked him to film their secret initiation ceremony. So he did. When the ceremony was over and the filming was done, the elders asked if they could watch this movie of themselves. Carpenter agreed, but first he needed to send the film back to America to be processed. So as they waited, the tribe prepared. They made a sacred enclosure specifically for viewing the film. And then they announced that once the film had been shown, they would no longer hold mandatory initiations for the tribe's men, as they'd done for hundreds of years, because they'd have a film of it they could look at the presence of the camera had detonated their entire way of life.
1: The idea that an image could be more important to the Papuans than the real thing that it depicts is scary. But we sort of do the same kind of thing ourselves today by spending more time interacting with our friends as digital simulacra on social media than we do in person. Once again, it's like the pictures are more important than the reality.
0: And it's actually even scarier now, because we still put tremendous faith in images. And in some ways, we let them supersede real life. But now we have no guarantee that the image hasn't been manipulated or like just made up out of thin air. And even if the images
1: aren't actually manipulated, the selection of pictures and videos that people post on social media can be wildly misleading. Since the invention of photography, we have, if you like, had to navigate a personal version of the liar's dividend. Whether it's endless albums or slideshows of holiday photos or oversharing on social media, we're all spreading and receiving propaganda about our own lives to try to control the view that we want people to have of us. And when you add image manipulation and the gamification of likes and shares, that distorts things even further. So it's hard to tell what's an objective source of truth anymore. We can all be like Vladimir Putin we can all flood the zone with narratives that aren't entirely truthful and in some cases, deliberately obscure reality.
0: Ted Carpenter died in 2011, one year after Instagram launched. Thanks to his time in New Guinea... He didn't need to see the advent of social photography in order to understand that images have a power to shape the world beyond our control.
2: When they're transforming it in their own way, we haven't harnessed them. We may as well stop the ocean now.
0: We may as well stop the ocean. Visual technology is a wave that has crashed over us and continues to keep us submerged and disoriented. We've gotten so used to altering photos and videos on our smartphones, applying filters, cropping, adding effects, all to mislead and influence our audience. I think we're becoming increasingly comfortable with the idea that recorded images will bear a very tenuous relationship to the truth, that a video of a politician might be genuine, might not, who knows, throw up your hands, whatever. And I wonder what it will mean to live in a future world where we have zero trust or even expectation that recorded images are authentic. There will be no more distinction between visual fact or fiction, No more distinction between you or the false you that your images present to me. No more distinction between evidence that changes our minds or propaganda that clouds them. So Tom, I will confess to you my original intention for how we were going to wrap up this episode is I was going to make a deep fake where they would put you into pornography where you would be a, a, like a male porn star. Thank in, goodness this is a podcast and there's no video. And I was going to confront you with it and see how would that. Make, let's just imagine I did that and let's just say I threatened to you know re- put it on Facebook, just re- like put it up on my Twitter page, release it to the world. Now, how do you feel? Uh, Then I say, how much do you want? I mean, that's that's the next step. Well, I think the
1: fact that you couldn't do these things shows you that it's more difficult than you think it is. So I don't know how quickly these things are going to get better, but maybe it would make me think twice about having as many pictures of me publicly available. Because that's one of the things you could do. I have friends who do this, who who, you know they deliberately keep pictures of themselves off social media because they just don't know what's going to happen to them, who's going to use them for things. And then the other thing is
0: there's still the voice. Yeah. Well. Okay. So I wasn't able to make the deepfake video, but, but here's something I did to do. Uh, Tom, what do you think about my argument so far?
1: Seth, you are completely correct.
0: Now, that sort of sounds like you. It doesn't 100% sound like you. It sounds like a robot (laughs) me. Yes. What what is it then? So this is is the company called Liarbird. And if you give them a few hours of audio of someone talking and transcripts of that, they can take it and make a voice. So that's what we did with you. We took a few hours of you talking and transcripts of what you were saying. We gave them to the company and they created this voice, your voice, and I can make you say anything I want you to say pretty much. (laughs) <laughs> Go on then. Let's um. Here you are again.
2: From the home, Mr. I'm
1: Tom Standage. Welcome to the secret history of the future.
0: Now, as you point out with Deepak, this is this is not yet 100 percent plausible voice. Like no one is going to listen to this and be like, oh yes, that's definitely Tommy speaking. So naturally, that sounds just like him. But you can also see how they might get there before too long. And then what? Then what? You know. Now I can just have you say anything at the drop of a hat on my command. You're my puppet.
1: That's true. If you look at the uh, deep fake videos of, of, of Donald Trump and Barack Obama, they both had to use impressionists to do the voice. And actually, that was what let them down. Um, so I think, yeah, if they can crack that, then we're really in trouble. But I think the general takeaway is that we all need to be on our guard in ways that maybe we weren't in the past, and we need to be much more sceptical about not just photos, but also video and audio. And we maybe need to think about how much of ourselves we put out there into the public domain, which just gives people the raw materials they need to make fake versions of us. We will need to be on our guard in ways we weren't in the past. I couldn't have put it better myself. The medium is the message. It it's taken a fake voice to persuade me that Marshall McLuhan was right. There you are.
0: I'm Seth Stevenson. And I'm Tom Standage. The Secret History of the Future is a joint production of Slate and The Economist. It's produced by Bart Warshaw and Kate Holland. Editorial help was provided by Gabriel Roth. The senior producer for Slate Podcasts is TJ Raphael. The executive producers are Steve Lichtai for Slate Podcasts and Anne McElvoy for The Economist. Next week on The Secret History of the Future.
5: If you could have some sort of clock in the sky and you could compare that with the time at a place of known longitude on land, then you could figure out your position.
0: Thanks for listening. If you haven't already, subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen.